Hey, this is Wolf Hoffman from Accept, and I want you to focus on metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. Welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. And oh my God, again, Richie back in the actual studio, not doing this by Skype. Thank fuck for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can definitely say that. So how you doing? Doing, doing good? great. Awesome. Looking forward to this one. So yeah, this is definitely one that we're, you know, we've been talking about for what? A month now? Yeah. At least? Yeah, about a month. So, uh, and... Uh, it is kind of one of those staples of uh, music podcasts, the old top five. I think we had a lot of fun doing it when we did it for uh, to honor Martin Birch. And uh, this time, you know, another great producer, engineer, mixer extraordinaire, the man from Germany, Michael Wagner. Yeah, he, uh, he announced his retirement, I think it was on his 72nd birthday. And that got the wheels turning in my head that we'd done Martin. Uh-huh. And Michael's done a few records. Just a few. And I figured that we haven't done a dis- full discussion episode since the Martin one, and I figured that this might be a another one to to handle, yeah, and see see uh, how we do. I'm sure we're going to have <laughs> There's a couple uh, of crossovers, probably. Um, I don't know if it's, it'll be as uh, as prevalent as the Martin one. It's true because yeah, Martin, Michael's done a, f- a lot of more more bands, I think, than Martin. He, did. Well, you got to figure that for a huge chunk of his career, Martin really concentrated on Maiden. Well, they paid you know? Maiden paid him just to produce them, right, and not do anybody so else. That's a little bit different. And the other thing too that see is that is that Michael kind of reminds me a little bit too of somebody like Chris Sangarides, where you might have an album that's in trouble or a band that's really losing their way on an album. And they, you know, they would, oh, let's go get Chris. And they would be, oh, let's go get Michael. Or sometimes, yeah. you know, even Michael just happened to be around or something. And so, the, you know, you, you read about all these albums and you realize that a lot of times he's not the guy that started it, but he's the guy that finished it. Or he's the guy that pulled it into the, in the end when things just weren't looking like they were going to work out really well. And I thought that was something I really like about him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he's got a lot of co-producing. He's got co-producing credits, produced himself. Yeah. Produced. Engineered, mixed, did them all separately. Yeah, at, all together. <laughs> and then you got the whole, you got the whole thing of uh, that for a, a chunk of it, he didn't even really speak English. Yeah, who were we talking to a, a while back about that? And they mentioned when he was in the studio with him, he said his English wasn't. Great. Yeah, I, could, I can't remember, but yeah, it was. Um, it was the singer. I yeah, think it was. Um, Oh, fuck, I can't remember the name of the guy. That's bugging the shit out of me. I do remember that it came up in conversation. It was like, yeah, and, and so that's interesting, too, that, yeah, yeah. And he still was able to, to uh, you know, get things done, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But when I was researching this and looking through the albums, fuck me, he did some of the records. Yeah. And he did a lot of albums that I like. This, to me, was harder <laughs> to do than Martin's. yeah. So um, yeah, and for me, my whole thing was um, we talked a little bit about it last time you were over. Was you know, is it? Am I going to restrict? You know, my whole thing of am I going to restrict himself myself to just like things he you know mixed or things he produced or things he engineered or things he did the whole nut or and so I was kind of having that whole 
thing with myself. So yeah, that was that was what kind of made me a little bit uh, more difficult to pick it. I know. did not limit myself. Yeah, um, it was any of them. Yep, which made it harder <laughs> <laughs> because of it. Yeah, um, but I just decided that if his name was in the credits anywhere on it, mm-hmm. it counted. Okay, um, I don't know whether. You did or not, because I haven't seen your list and you nope. haven't seen mine, yep. which is the way we should do it. And my list has been actually been sitting here. I got buried. I had to unbury it today, yeah. but uh, it's been sitting here. I, I actually did it weeks back when yeah. uh, we thought we'd be able to, to nail this out. So. And I'm sure we have some honorable mentions. We Actually, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> now, w- one thing I will say, when people hear my list, it doesn't mean I don't love a lot of the other stuff he, sure, he did, because yeah. I yep. do. Yep, same, same goes with um, mine. This is just, again, like the Martin Birch thing. This is my list. These albums just spoke to me at the yep. time. Um, it was the time they came out. They're all from like 80, mid-80s to the early early 90s. Okay. It doesn't mean he didn't do anything really good early 80s or yep. after the 90s, because yep. he did, because yep. he's just a great producer engineer yeah. and mixer right. and, and for mine too was it the other it's it's those legs of the stool you had and then i had an additional leg to the stool which is also because of the way my stupid brain works is is sonics and whether you know it, and not necessarily everyone has this but you know it could be that it has all that plus it has the additional thing of it, it, it's a different sound and or it did something else kind of you know that that whole idea of like the 1987 album type of thing where sonically something changed on that. So that, you know, that hits everything. And then it also has, you know, this whole added other thing. Not that that's Mike Wagner one, but just kind of, that's an example. Yeah. One of the things I love about Michael, I, you can't say that he had a signature sound on records. No, because he didn't. He was able to work with European mm-hmm. bands and American bands. Yep. One thing you, you you might say about Michael is, he, he, I don't think he dumbed down the production on records to, for radio. Mm-hmm. That he always brought this metal, hard rock, European sensibility to a lot of the American bands that he worked with as well. He did. I think that's part of also you know what he what part of his talent was figuring out what a you know what the band was what they thought they should sound like and then working with them and not trying to just put his stamp on them. Yeah. Um, but when he did, it was usually something that was accepted because they went, wow, that, you know, that really is us. We, we, you know, well, let's figure out how to get that. And I think that he really had an ear for that. And, um, you know, in some cases, like, you know, one of my honorable mentions, uh, you know, actually contacting the band himself and saying, Hey, you know, I'd be interested in producing your next one. If you're going to do one, because, you know, being able to go, I think I can, put myself into that and do the, the, the music the proper justice that, that it needs. I wonder how often that actually happened with producers. That's an interesting point you bring up because mm-hmm. normally the label contacts the producer to work with the band. Yep. I haven't really heard much the other way around where the producer contacts the band and says, I'd love to work with you. Yeah, I mean, you've got the other part too is a lot of times, um, especially when you think, of, you know, like Warner Brothers, you know, they had their stable of, of producers. So, you know, it's not like Van Halen went out to to get Ted. He was part of the stable of the Warner Brothers producers. Yeah. And so he was, you know, the guy that was assigned to it. It could have been Lenny Warrenker at the same time, but, you know, it wasn't. It was Ted. So um, I think uh, you have that. And I think there are some that do go out. I would imagine that even these days that there's things that, you know, Jeff Pilsen hears about and goes, huh, 
I'm kind of interested in that, you know, and, and approaches them. I think that might've actually been what happened with, uh, with Benedictum. So, yeah. Hmm. So we get going. Sure. You want to go pick, you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? I'll let you go first. We're doing we're doing like five to five one. Five to one, okay. And again, this is like hard. Um, right, I'm going to start with uh, 1991. Okay. I, I do not think that this is on your list. Um, Saigon Kicks debut record. It is not. Um, this band to me were a breath of fresh air. Uh-huh. Uh... They did not sound like a lot of the the hair metal y stuff that was coming out at the time. Uh, they, some 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 song. songs did. Yeah, the pal, the power ballad definitely yeah. did. Yeah. Um well everyone had a ballad back then. It was yeah, it was required to but breathe. You yes. had a varied sound. I I remember reading a, an interview in Kerrang where they were all saying how big fans of Prince they were. Mm-hmm. That Prince could do anything so they were they wanted to be like a, a heavier version of them okay they had great harmonies yeah um i just think that the debut album is, is amazing it just got reissued on vinyl and i picked up a copy i think there's only 900 copies being made uh-huh and the, t- the thing still stands up because it stood out then yeah and if i if i you put it on now and it, it doesn't sound like an a late 80s hard rock record because of the variation that's in it. Uh-huh. Um, you had them and you had Living Color and you had King's X and Yeah, well, I think part of that too, right, is that Saigon Kick kind of came in on the, uh, like on that backside as well. So where you started to have a lot of other bands that were getting signed that did bring other elements to the table. They weren't just, um, they hadn't put, put like through the LA grinder and, you know, rehearsing around each other and all that and kind of been homogenized. Well, they were a Florida band, I believe. Right, but I mean, that's what I mean, though. They came in from the backside of yeah, all yeah. that, where, you know, labels are still searching and kind of doing their, their kind of last gas signings. And so I think they, they came in at that a little, you know, the right time for them. Hmm. But some of that album is really heavy. It, it's got the harmonies and the heaviness. Mm-hmm. And I think Michael just pulled it off on the first record. It, it, I like... When I got the vinyl and I put it on, I was like, fuck me, this thing still sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. And um, he was just really able to capture uh, capture the sound of the band at the time. And of course, then The Lizard was the next record and Michael didn't work on that. And that's yeah. the one that really blew him up. Yeah. But Love is on the way. Right. Is on that. But this is number five for me. It just yeah. stood out for me at the time it came out. I'm like, wow. Yeah. This isn't, doesn't really sound like anybody else. Sure. And I think probably at that time too, right? First record didn't do as well varied probably indicates more the personality of the band okay the second one better do better I'm sure there was a lot more push into there about what was getting written how it was getting written like you know order all that and uh yeah yeah they got the hit and all that but it i think that's also probably the change from what you liked to the kind of more commercialized version of the band hmm. on that album well, you know? even the second record is very varied as well. Yeah. yeah it's a great record. I, I know Jason Beeler, the guitar player, who wrote most of the material. He produced it. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they just said it for the second record. The label went, you, we're cutting your budget. Mm-hmm. Could be. You can't afford Michael. You're going to have to do it yourself. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But that's my uh, that's my number five. Okay. So, now I got to go. You probably do not have this band on your list, but it is uh, 
from uh, 2012. So when you were saying about you know your time frame, I'm like, yeah, I got to almost be up past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Canadian band Striker, and I heard their first album that Michael really wasn't involved in, but the second one he was, which was Armed to the Teeth. And I can remember that myself, one of my daughters, we would drive around and we would have this thing in the CD player all the time. And, you know, it took all the great songwriting from the debut album and just really punched it up. And again, it had a heavy album. You could tell you like the influences they had. So you had songs that you could feel Maiden coming in or Aerosmith coming in or and you could really get the influences on there and just it's a really I really like the band just by itself, but Arm to the Teeth when that one came out and I and I put that one in, it was like oh, they hit it. They really really put it together this time. Never heard. And uh, yeah, I'm like I figured you wouldn't have that on no, there. I never heard them. I yeah, I've ever heard. Oh, them. you they, assuming that they have been freed from the captivity of my ex wife, then they're probably <laughs> in one of those boxes over there. With my luck, it's probably still in captivity. Um, never to be in my clutches again. But uh, if I have it, I'll let you borrow that. You know, I think you'll really like it. Now, did Michael do the whole caboodle on that? So, so on that one there, Michael did everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did the whole thing. He he, he mixed, engineered, produced, yeah, all that. And and they have, because they're from Canada, uh, they also, they have, they've been getting endowments from uh the Canadian Arts Council or whatever the heck it's called. You know, if Dario was here, he'd tell me exactly what it was called. And they even put thank yous in their credits to that as well. So they got funding from the Canadian government as well. All right. And um, they put it to good use with, you know, great sounding stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's mine. Wow. For number five. Okay. Um, Number four, I'm going to go with a German band. And it's not accept. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for the, the and it's not accept to come no, up. <laughs> it's not accept. It's uh, a, a German band called Bonfire. Uh-huh. I, I figured at least one of the Bonfire albums was going to yeah, be on your list. The, the Fireworks record from okay. 87. All right. Uh, just Se- Was that second? That's their second record. Okay. Um, I think it might have been the first that Michael did, though. Yeah, okay. And this album blew me away. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, this is one of my favorite melodic rock albums ever. Yeah, there was actually the, uh, so in the day job, controller that I used to work with, two controllers back, and this, he loved this album. He would just go on and on about this album. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely has fans out there. Mm. And the first record, Don't Touch the Light, is is a solid album. And then they got Michael in to do the second one. Mm-hmm. And he just did an amazing job on it. But one of the, things that he did on it which like and it still blows me away when you listen to it yeah he got ken mary in to play drums on it. uh-huh hi this is ken mary and you're listening to focus on metal so focus people focus and the fucking drumming on this is unbelievable and whatever michael did with whatever way he did it and mixed it and everything it's heavy but it's commercial and it's just it has some great songs on it. Sweet Obsession was the single. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a ballad on it, I believe, that was released as a single. But it's a heavy record. Yeah. Um, he just got got he just got a great sound out of the band on it. Klaus Lessman was a, is a great singer. Yeah. Um, twin guitar band. They, they never really broke. No, not, at least not here. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know why. One of the things Klaus has that... Klaus Meiner, like, has the German influence, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inflection. Inflection on his accent. Mm-hmm. Klaus in 
in Bonfire doesn't really have that. Yeah. Um, which I thought would maybe help them cross over a lot more. Yeah. And it just didn't work. Maybe there was there was just a lot of bands in the in the pond at the time and and I think there's a lot of European bands they brought brought out great albums but they never really broke in the States. Europe were the only ones that really broke and yeah. you know, Bonfire were coming in off the back of that mm-hmm. and TNT and, and these guys and yeah. they never really made it over here. Um, maybe there weren't American sounding enough. I don't know, but the songs were there, the performances were there. Yeah, and I'll still put this album on, and it's still amazing. Yeah. Um, the album after this, I don't think is as good. It had like seventeen songs on it, too many songs on mm-hmm. it, and yeah, this one is like ten, and they're all fucking all all killer, no yeah. filler. Yeah. You know, what year was that? Eighty-seven. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that sounds right. Ten yeah. songs. Yeah. But Ken Mary's drumming on this is oh man. Well, unbelievable. That's Ken, right? Yeah, he's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely good, good, good damn game. I mean, that's why he's like in all these bands, right? He's just a damn good drummer. Yeah, but this album sounds nothing like Saigon Kick, which just says a lot about Michael. Oh, yeah. I think, I think, <laughs> I think of all as we go through these, there may be some relationships between them, but none of them sound like, like that, you know, as opposed to um, you can, you know, listen to uh, uh Mutt Lang albums and you can see yeah that's a Mutt mm. or, or uh Keith Olsen same thing you can kind of be yeah yeah it's got a Keith Olsen sound to yeah, it yeah. right or 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 Bo is another one that's got mm. kind of a commonality be- behind it yeah. right so yeah. yeah but Michael he's always seems to be kind of that independent kind of guy anyways right mm-hmm. so all right now I got to I got to now see I should have put these in a damn order cuz now I have to wing it as I'm looking at it. I didn't put and, them in an order on my list. And, I'm and, looking at them thinking okay, I'm picking this one next and and, and ranking it, but um <laughs> I'm going to you know what? I'm going to go with the German band that is except, but it's uh, you know I will say that I have a an honorable mention for Balls to the Wall. I think Michael did a great job mixing that and you know that was Definitely one of these. I think that's kind of the album where a lot of a lot of what they could do really came together and became. I'll relate it back again. It's almost like their 1987. It's the album that they basically injected an, an Americanization into their sound, in my opinion. But before that, if you listen to albums prior to that, they didn't. They still have that European sound, a little bit of that, you know noise records you know flakiness you know you know what i mean right Mm -hmm. exactly so um obviously i'm gonna have to say it's the classic restless and wild it has such an influence even with the sound that it that that is on that album and you know what what uh, michael was able to do with that one um you know with engineering and mixing it you know i think someone looking listening to it today they may feel like it's a little flat of course, it's being mixed for vinyl, so you can't have a lot of that, you know, the big bass, and you can't have a lot of the drums and things in there. But, um, you know, for anybody that really kind of follows the trail back and you and you, you realize how influential a song like Fast as a Shark was, which opens the damn thing up, mm-hmm. that it's, uh, you know, just such a, uh, a really, really influential, well-put-together album. It is of the time. It does have all the constraints of technology at the time, too, but... I, I think definitely that's um, just an amazing album. I think he did such a great job with the engineering, with the mixing, and um, 
I think there must have been a lot of compromises on that sound as they went through it as well to do it. And uh, I think that was the first record Michael worked with him. I believe it is. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I think as the, you know it goes along, you, you see a little you know the difference changes with like things like Russian roulette and stuff. And but and then ultimately when you get to balls to the walls, which I think they had a lot of a lot of support, a lot of influences. They they've been out touring. They had you know seen a lot more. And technologically, things had gotten better as well that they were able to do more on that one. They had more money. They did. And that was one of the ones that was, you know, well, Balls to the Wall, I remember, so when I was, I was on the radio when Balls to the Wall came out. And I remember they, that was the first time that I, they actually did a promotional push for an Accept album. And they were sending out, I don't know if you remember, they used to do these like target things you put on the wall, you throw this Velcro ball at it and it would stick to the target. So it was basically, it was the album cover. And then they had these balls that look like the steel balls yeah. that are on the cover. Yeah, and you'd, yeah. you'd throw that at the album cover picture, and it was, the, it was balls to the walls. And, I, remember, uh, I remember the first time I saw Accept, I think it was, because uh, of course we didn't have MTV at the time. Uh-huh. And I think Mick Wall's Monsters of Rock played, it was either Midnight Mover or Balls to the Wall. Uh-huh. And I'd never, I'd never really heard the band or seen them at, at that stage. Yeah. And I remember... You had Wolf, and then you had Peter, and you uh-huh. held the band. And next <laughs> and then thing, the, the singer, <laughs> right? And I was like, sh- this little short-haired, uh-huh. short guy, yeah. that's as wide as he is tall. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> is this fucking band? And I didn't get it in the beginning. It took me years to get Accept. Yeah. Um, but when I got them, I'm like, fuck me, this band are amazing. Yeah. I always used to think of them as... Uh, a poor version of Judas Priest, mm. or Judas Priest with an inferior singer. Yeah, that's the way I looked at him. Uh-huh. And over time, then you know you, you you keep listening to him, and you're like, yeah, this is good. And then it's like, no, this is fucking really good. Yeah. Um, rest of some wild, yeah, great pick. Yeah, Fantastic and considering album. that at that time too, they really couldn't speak English. Well, that's why yeah, couldn't do well, lyrics Michael, in English. Michael you know? was okay because Michael's Michael's from Germany. Yeah, but I just I just mean like with all the lyrics and you know they had you know they had Gabby writing lyrics yeah. for him and stuff because yeah, she knew how to do years. it and you know that she did, she wrote lyrics with him for years. And she did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. you look at some of the Scorpions lyrics; they're a bit dodgy as well. Um, yeah, yeah especially some of the earlier albums. Yeah, yeah. You listen even to some, some of the later albums. Yeah, well, but yes, I think more like when you listen look listen to some of the stuff on Lonesome Crow and stuff, and you're. Um, no, that, that doesn't, you know, and, and you can tell the difference too, between the ones that Herman would write versus what anyone well, else Herman would write had, too. Herman spoke English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's when you were like, okay, that's a Herman one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's my number four. The rest All of right. wild. Number three, uh, band's third record came out in 1985 under lock and key by Dockin. Okay. Um, Neil Kern and Michael produced it. Yeah. And I think. I know Michael worked on under on um, Tooth and Nail. Uh huh. I prefer this record. I think of of the four records they brought out before they broke up. This is my favorite. Okay. I just think it had the balance between the heaviness and the and the commercial. Okay. Pop sensibilities. I think they just captured it on this record. Okay. This record has always spoken to me. I, I think George's playing on it is fantastic. Again. 10 songs, Back for the Attack at 13 songs. It was uh-huh. over an hour long. Yeah. This one had just the, the perfect length on it. Yeah. Dawn sounds great on it too. Singing, you know, screaming, and the end of Lightning Strikes again is like, fucking hell, wow. 
Yeah. But uh, it had In My Dreams on it. It uh-huh. had uh, The Hunter. It's it's just got some great songs on it. It's just a great record. It's your number three, isn't it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because I was like, I'm looking at my list and I'm going, but, but honest to God, it actually, I'll show you, it isn't on my list. Okay. Believe it or not. However, I do have Dokken on my list, so I guess I'm just going to make one of them number three because why not? We're just kind of like Germans. Now we'll do Dokken. I do have two Dokken things on my list, but neither one of them was under lock and key. But it's, for me, it's tooth and nail. I do also have Breaking the Chains on there. Uh, Breaking the Chains was, uh, that was a big deal for me when I found that in the import bin at, uh, I guess it was Strawberries at that time, Drum Hill. So we're, uh, what the heck is it now? Like where Five Guys is out there right now? Yeah, yeah. It was a Strawberries there. Okay. A long time ago. And they had a great import section. And, uh, you know, I found this in there. And again, I know there's a lot of stuff that went on with, with breaking the chains. And so, you know, Michael was kind of, uh, you know, that's one of those fix it kind of roles that he did on that one. And so there's kind of a lot of, there's a lot of hands in that one. If you really go back on the history of breaking the chains and, uh, but you know, when I got tooth and nail, it was like, yeah, it just, it, so I think you probably appreciated more the kind of the smoothing out and the uniformity of sound on on yeah. uh, on under lock and key, and for me, I liked more the the bite that was on tooth and nail. I never liked the mix on tooth and nail that much. <laughs> the songs are great, yeah, for the most part, yeah. But I I don't know. I just never I never really liked the mix on it. Yeah. So I think I think part of it, right, is and I'm just postulating here, but when we think about you know, when you really got into hard rock, heavy metal, and, and when I did, and what was out at the time, so you kind of come in at a certain point, and, and I started out with... I'm after you. Exactly. I'm, I'm 86. Exactly. And, I, you know, and I'm coming in with Aerosmith, right? I'm coming in with The Who. I'm coming in with Black Sabbath. Yeah, and, in you know, early 80s. Yeah, yeah so I've got, I have, so it's, it's different. So when you, you know, and obviously, you know, i all that kind of stuff I really, I still really love. But you compare that, so, you know, I'm going through all that, and then all of a sudden you hear something like this, and there is this big, big difference, you know, from from being worshiping Joe Perry to all of a sudden like, oh, wait a minute, George Lynch is God. And you you get it to a point with, with uh, breaking the chains, but then tooth and nail just ups that game for me. And I just, yeah, I just thought that that, you know, he did a great job mixing this one, uh, especially for a band that was in, you know, as much controversy as they were even then. Actually, when 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 weren't they ever in controversy, well, right? Wh- who who was it? Werman bailed and Roy Thomas or Roy Thomas Baker. One of them started it and didn't finish it. Exactly. And yeah. Then Michael had to come in and finish to finish it and mix it. Yep. So yeah, another one, another one of these. Okay. Well, let's. Can you can you fix us again after think, you fix? I think the it last was Tom Werman started it and he couldn't work with George or Don or. Yeah, both. something like that. Yeah, and then he bailed and yeah, but yeah, that's that's I like I said I I went I went and I looked and you know and and I do I I love all the songs on on uh, under lock and key you know a lot of times I'll, some of those riffs just are like my warm up riffs and stuff but it, again it's that whole other part that I spoke of at the beginning which was a lot of times too that sonic stuff has to speak to me on it and a lot of times that just that just gets me because I'll just be like, 
God, fuck, how did he get that sound? That just, <laughs> you know, on just that perfect level between something. And, uh, you know, it's something that a lot of times I don't think people have a total appreciation of is, uh, is that whole being able to recognize how something's going to go. Because you've got to figure, right, that this is, you know, this time frame, you start to have ba- uh, bands that are, they might be in the studio all together, cut the drum track, and then everyone's doing their individual stuff. Mm-hmm. And to know that a guitar sound that you're hearing in a room and and be able to be good enough to know what you need to do with that sound or how you have to make that sound work to actually make it mesh with everything. Because it's interesting when people take, you know, you, you look at all my stomp boxes and crap around here, and I could be sitting here and just playing alone have this perfect, awesome sound that just sounds the balls. And then you suddenly you stick that with a bass and a drum, and it sounds like total crap. And it's nothing's changed about the sound, but it's 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 everything around it and how it goes. And I think that's part of the magic of of what Michael does and, mm. and some of the sonics that he comes out is it just he knows how to do it and how to make everything just sit right without cheating anything. And yeah. so no one's going, Oh, turn me up. No, I'll turn me up. Oh no, turn me up thing, you know, and it's just yeah, it's just and that's one of those albums that to me is like that. Yeah. Um I'm gonna save you some editing now because I've remembered a musician who Michael said to make a fist because he didn't have the English to uh-huh. to to, um, to motivate the guy. It was Mark Kendall. Mark, ah, okay. Yeah, Mark, I knew it was yeah. very recent. So yeah. Mark Kendall was talking about the debut Great White record. Right. And Michael Wagner worked on it and he'd no, he'd no next to no English. Yep, and that's he, right. He, he, shout, he said to him over the, the microphone into the studio, make a fist. <laughs> I think Mark looked at him like, what? What are you on about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to you actually want to hear that whole interview? You go back about what? Two months. Yeah, about ten episodes or so. Yeah, and uh, there's a whole great Mark Kendall interview that Richie did that goes through all kinds of stuff. And yeah, that's right. That's where it's on. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll save you some editing. So nice. What, anything else on? Oh, one thing. Breaking the chains. Other than the title track, Paris is burning, and maybe Night Rider. Oh, I didn't don't like that album at all. Didn't like it? No. When you listen to the ones that came after. Well, yeah, and you but you gotta like, figure what, what the, you gotta figure what the genesis of, of breaking the chains was, right? And it's it, and then everything after it is essentially the band. You know, but breaking the chains is is kind of in a little bit of an amalgamation of stuff, and yeah. uh, you know, taking this song and is these it are a solo and, album? Is it not? Who's exactly, Juan Cruz yeah. is on it, isn't he? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, Juan's no on Jeff there. Jeff Pilsen yep. yet? Mm. Yeah. So this, you know, and, and it's you know, okay, well, this is this guy's song, and that's this, and this was supposed to be for that, and yeah, there's a lot there. So it's 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 more of a mixed bag, and then tooth and nail. Well, now you really have more of uh, you don't. You still don't really have the um, kind of the writing team in my mind still set up um, like you do going forward. When you get to under lock and key, that's when you kind of have this. You can tell, oh, that's a George and Jeff song. Oh, that's a Jeff and Don song. Oh, that's a Don song. You know what I mean? You still don't really get that on on tooth and nail. But by the time you get to under lock and key, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on to number two. Okay, go ahead. Hit me with it. Number two. Um, this album came out in 1988. Oh, now you're in, we're in prime Richie time. Yeah. So <laughs> this was the first new Megadeth record that I had. And I 
did not like when when I first heard Peace Cells, I loved the song. I did not like the record because it was just all over the place. It was just different. It was it wasn't commercial hard rock. It was just real intricate trash metal. Um with with a with, with a big ass layer of jazz underneath. Yeah. It, it yeah. was and it was just like whoa. The first time I, I heard it, I was like, well, I love the single. Because uh-huh. that's like, quote, you know, inverted commas, that's as commercial as they got at the time. <laughs> um, and it's still a fantastic song, he sells. But you put on Wake Up Dead, it's about eight songs in one. It's, it's you know, it's, it's yeah. like three and a half minutes long. Right. And there's like, how many time changes are in it? And there's like, there's no real verse chorus structure. Uh-huh. And... I remember hearing that and the conjuring and, and, um, I was going to say the, I was going to be my one. I was like the conjuring. Yeah. Like, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And I, I eventually got it. Like, I was like, fuck this. You know, all my friends are saying this band is amazing. I, I have to fucking stick with them. And the album, like eventually, I think it probably took me like fucking 10 listens to get it. And I was like, fucking hell, this is amazing <laughs> because they sounded like nobody else yeah. at the time. And, and then, of course, th- this album was done. And the first song they brought out on it was a single in 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 England. Anyway, it was uh, the cover of Anarchy in the UK. Uh-huh. And I'm like, eh, this is only okay, you know. Yeah. All right. And then I got the record and set the world afire. And in t- uh, no, the first song was um, "Into the Lungs of Hell," uh-huh. instrumental. Yeah. And then into "Set the World Afire," I was like. Fuck me, this thing is fucking amazing. Yeah. Like there's there's no fucking singing in it for the first five minutes of the record. <laughs> it's like this yeah. fucking amazing instrumental. And then you fucking riff upon riff upon riff on Set the World of Fire. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, fucking hell, this thing's incredible. And then you have Anarchy in the UK, which, yeah. nah. And then you had Mary Jane, but then you flip it over, like In My Darkest Hours on it. Uh-huh. Hooking mouths on it. Right. I'm like, oh, fuck, made it. Like I was like, Wow. This album was like, oh, <laughs> I wore this out. And the, one of the another reason I'm bringing this up is when Mustaine remixed it. Yeah, a lot of people do not like the remix he did on it. Yeah, um, I don't know how you feel about it, um, but it is very different to Michael's mix that he did for this record in '88. It is. It's um, Michael's mix is it's. For one thing, it's it's punchier. It's got a little bit. It's got more dirt to it, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I just think I think all around. Yeah, you're right. It it. I actually like the original better than I like the remix. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. But it's. Yeah. It's. It's. I mean, any one of those, but yeah, they really hit their stride on this. Kind of almost in this this thing of going back to that whole thing of. of like fuck the song. We're gonna make epics. We're gonna record epics. We're gonna do what we want. Um, we're not gonna look at doing those three minute things, with the exception, of course, of Anarchy. But I think this just kind of goes back to them just, just throwing down and going for it. It amazes me how good this record is because when you read the Rust and Peace book, and you read out the stuff in Ellison's book and mm-hmm. Stain's book, how fucked up on drugs they were when they for this period when uh-huh. they were doing this record. Well, it amazes me. I mean, this is one, uh, there's two albums that when I think about that state of mind that that come to me, and it's this one, and and although people really don't, most people don't like it, but it's Draw the Line. 
by Aerosmith. Same thing. Where, you know, in, in uh you know, in Perry's or, or Tyler's words, they were gacked to the nines. You know, and they're they're off they're surprised that no one actually did shoot anybody else because there was you know, it just was ridiculous what how even even, you know, Jack Douglas was basically gone too and you know so and so that to have the whole crew be able to pull in if you really go back and, and you listen to to draw the line you're like how the fuck did they do this like just the amount of drugs and just just a whole mental melt meltdown they were in and they still were able to pull that off same deal with this one yeah and 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 then for this one it's what you brought up right at the beginning the intricacy of it as well which is just you know thinking about you know playing with people um, it's probably one of the things I really did not enjoy in bands is when you had band members that were, you know, always into drugs and stuff and they couldn't remember things five minutes after you did them. And to think that they could be this screwed up and remember those parts, just, it, it boggles my mind. I don't, yeah, you know? And of course, the, the, this album is, is one and done for a lot of reasons. It's one, it's the only album that Jeff Young and Chuck Beeler played on. Yep. Yep. It's the only Megadeth re- record, I believe, that Paul Lanny produced. Because yeah, I after, think so, the, yeah. after this, yeah. it was Max Norman, and then it was Greatness, because he did Rust in Peace, right. Countdown, Euthanasia. And I think a, a, a lot of fans, well, I'm, I can't say a lot of fans, but th- this album kind of gets overlooked because it's it, you got P-Cells before it, which uh-huh. is an absolute Stone Cold classic. Yeah. And then Rust in Peace, which is a Stone Cold classic. Right. And of course, this is the one in the middle. Yep. And I think this one kind of gets overlooked a lot. Um, I think, And I think the other part with this. this is that, yeah, again, you've got, you set that up perfectly because this album is also more of the the hardcore fan favorite. This is the people that are, they're not looking for the commercial band. But they're going. I freaking love this band, mm. and and that's what you've got. You've got the hardcore Megadeth loyalist on here, and then they kind of turned and did a little bit of something different when they get to Rust. You know, so it's it's. It, I think that's part of where where this one falls off a lot of people's radar. I think yeah. is that you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's yeah, that's a damn good choice. I, I amazingly as much as I. Really, I am. I'm definitely a Megadeth fanboy. Um, I actually don't have any Megadeth on my list. Okay, <laughs> believe it or not. Okay, I don't. So we're we're at two, right? We're two. at number two. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> Doesn't matter. No one will hear you. Yeah, that's true. No one will hear us. That's true. Um, no, uh, Skid Row, Slaves of the Grind, second album. Okay. Yeah, I, I just think that. Again, here's another band that first album, they still don't really have their stuff together. You don't really still have, well, you never really had Bass under control, but things were getting better. And I think this was the album where they found their stride. I think they were able to present a little bit more of what they wanted to present for themselves I don't think they ever really were able to present fully what they wanted to for themselves, but they presented more of what was there for themselves than what they did on the debut. Or it was more that was more what the what the label wanted them to sound like, you know. So this was them kind of being like, 
you know, screw you. We're going to, we're going to heavy it up. We're going to, we're going to put the balls back into what we had when we were a bar band and stuff and the hell with it. And, and I, and I even think they got a lot of pushback on this. And I think the label had to eat crow when people were picking this up and going, God damn, we like this. Didn't this go straight into number one? I believe it did. Yeah. But I think part of that, I don't, I don't remember when it comes in. I don't think SoundScan was in at that point. So that's also one of those, you know, one of those ones where it can be manipulated for what the numbers are as well. You know, you, you have a lot of times you have these albums that were number one. You know, what do, what do they say? Uh, ship platinum and return gold. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I just think this one again, and, and sonically too, same thing. It just, everything just falls together on this one and it just again you just you you put this thing down and, and you just like you want to drive fast you want to listen to it constantly and i think a lot of people just have this as one of those albums that they would if they could they listen to it like every freaking day kind of a thing and yeah to me this is that album skid row are a band that i like never really loved them um yeah, I, I think just, I think for you, them, you know, you know, some you know, some way you feel a band. Yeah, um, I'll, Slave to the Grind is this I, to me. I, I have, of course, I have it. Yeah, um, and I, there's certain songs on it that I love, but I, they're just a band that I never really just went. Oh my god! And there's people because I, I do the Facebook page. Yeah, and there's people on that fucking love this band like yep. the, of all the bands that came out in the late 80s early 90s sure these are the fucking creme de la creme yep and I just never fell in love with them the same way that a lot of other people did yeah I, I think the other part with, with, with them is um, it was almost like two bands you know what I mean you you had Skid Row and then you had this add-on guy that comes in it's really the 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 face of the band but in a way he was like in the band but he was never really yeah, in well, the band. Have you read that Nothing But A Good Time book? Uh, yes. The one that can't... Uh, yes, both of them. I've read both of them. Right. <laughs> With the same well, title. When you read that book, you'll find out how unmanageable Sebastian Bach was. Right. That you, you just... Could, it just went from one chapter, he did this, the next chapter, he did this, right. the next chapter, he did this, and you had the other guys just standing there going, what the fuck is this guy going to do tonight? Yeah. Yep. And that's that was that band. Right. I remember... did. They played a show in England, and I believe it might have been at Wembley Stadium, and they were told not to play Get the Fuck Out. And I think he got the newspaper and wiped his ass on stage with it. And then they played the song. Um, but, yeah, you Sebastian, great singer. Uh, Slave to the Grind, there's some great songs on, there's some great songs on the debut album as well. There and, is. And I like Subhuman Race, but... I've never really loved a band. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. You, anyway. Well, it is one of those bands, right, where you have the... you. It's interesting. I, it's, I can't even call it polarizing because polarizing usually means you've got hard left, hard right. You know what I mean? But you do have these people like you talk about on Facebook that are just like, they're, they're you know, they're skid row heads, right? Then you have the people that are the other opposite, which is like, they suck. I, I hate them. Blah, blah, blah. Usually based upon some antic that Sebastian did, right? And then you have the people that were just like the, oh, I like the songs that were on the radio, and eh, that was it. The kind ballads. Of thing. 18 and Life, You yep. Come Wild, yep. and I Remember You. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's, yeah, that's my number two. Okay. And of course, 
for Slave to the Grind, they brought out Pantera supporting them. Yes. Did you see that tour? No, I did not. Okay, because no, I never saw I, the, I never saw the band. I think I actually think they played in Dublin, uh, supporting Aerosmith, mm. and I didn't go to that show. So I don't know why. I think I might have been living in Waterford at the time. And ah. I didn't make it. Okay, but uh, we're on to number one. Uh huh. Um, wow. This is this one was easy. Uh, Master Puppets. <laughs> it had to be. This this album is in every list of the top heavy metal albums of all time. Yeah. This is nearly always in the top five, if not the top one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know Martin Popoff's top 500 heavy metal albums of all time book. This was number one. Yeah. You go on to Rolling Stone's top heavy yeah. metal records. This is up there. It it's is. Yeah. one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this album was like, well, remember when I heard this, it was like, and the first song that I heard on this was Disposable Heroes. It wasn't even one of the big songs yeah. that were on it. That was actually when I left work today and I turned on XL Metal. That's what was on, Disposable yeah. Heroes. Yeah, And I was like, fuck me, this thing is fucking amazing. And I remember getting the record and, of course, one of the mates said, wait until you hear a battery. I'm like, fuck. And I was listening to Rat. Yeah, uh-huh. fucking strike. <laughs> Iron Maiden. Yeah, and like this is like fucking Iron Maiden on steroids. Yeah, uh-huh. like this thing. It was like fucking unbelievable. And then Damage Inc. and a and a Ryan. Uh huh. And you know we had we talked to Fleming Rasmus and yep. we produced it. We episode three hundred yeah. three hundred one. Fuck me, is that long ago? Was it? Yeah, it was our three. It was our episode three hundred special. Yeah, yeah Fleming. We talked to Fleming about making this, and um, I actually did reach out to Michael. And I think because we got Fleming and Andy Galian, uh, we just left. I, well, not we. I just left it there. I was like, yeah, we we can't keep doing Master of Puppets all the time. Right. And um, But I did reach out to Michael and he was mad busy at the time. Yeah. And uh, he said he couldn't do it. But kudos to him. He got back to me and said it. But um, this album's fucking, you know, for most people, it's this and Ride the Lightning are the two best Metallica records ever. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think also, uh, you know, I remember the first time I actually heard Master, one of the guys that was working at the sound company with me, uh, he was going to Emerson, and the day this came out, one of the other kids in the dorm got this, day one, and he had this massive stereo system. And you got to that floor, you open the door, and this is all you heard. Like, just, so the first time I heard this, it was just at full, like, airplane engine volume full blast kind of a wow. thing and uh you know the other people i was with were like what the fuck is this crap like and i was just like yes you know and uh you know i started talking to them, like about ride the lightning and stuff and they're looking at me like what are you talking about but yeah so yeah i, I just remember that was a good memory was yeah day one of this and just walking and opening that doorway and just this was just blasting over the entire dorm it was pretty uh, pretty intense. Mm. One of the best concert experiences I ever had, it was before I moved here, uh, Metallica decided to play the whole album. Uh-huh. And they did it in Dublin. Okay. And just to see him play Disposable Heroes, to play it in that order. Yeah. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience because I don't think they've done it. I don't think they ever did it before then. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they've done it after either. Yeah. That they've played... That whole album, yeah, from start to finish. Nice. That album now, I'm talking about. Right. I know they have. I know after that they did Ride the Lightning. 
Yeah. Um, all of it, but to hear him play it, Master of Puppets. Yeah. Was, oh, yeah. Mind blowing. Did you see Metallica with Ozzy? 86, 87, was it? 80? I think so, I worked that show. Okay. I think that was, I want to say that was, well, it's a DCU center now. But yeah, I think that was the Centrum yeah, show. That, that's the tour that broke him. Yeah, Ozzy brought him out and, and basically, you know, yeah, gave him a huge high profile gig, and from there they, they just went fucking mega. Yeah, but um, yeah, but even I mean, you know, and not to make people think that it's happened like the, it, they had did the whole tour and then they were mega. I mean, they they started breaking in the middle of the tour. Yeah, you know, when, and unfortunately they were out with Ozzy, and Ozzy was kind of like, all right, you know, and and didn't get all you know. His panties and a bunch about it. He was kind of like, "Oh, okay, great." You know, must have scared the shit out of half the Aussie audience. I'm sure with some of the songs they had. <laughs> Let's do this little ditty called "Fight Fire with Fire." Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> Die. Bye, <laughs> my. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely. I mean, it was one of the first things I wrote down on here was was Master. And as I started to go through some of the other ones that that were really, you know, were like kind of high on my Michael Wagner list. The reason I didn't call it out initially was that, well, he only did the mixing part, but then it was, you know, it was going from there to say, okay, the other part was that Fleming really knew the band and Fleming really knew how to get a sound out of them. So that a lot of this was, you know, Michael got given, you know, not a bag of shit, you know, so he already had a very well-crafted album. You had, you had Cliff Burton at his, you know, songwriting arranging peak mm -hmm. i mean god knows how much further that guy could have gone so michael got a, a, a you know tapes of greatness to work with to begin with and then he just did a great job of of keeping that whole intent in place so that's where i was like yeah you know everything else on this was was already building to be just an amazing album and then he you know obviously mastering kind of aced it but you know just being able to know that he had stuff that was great coming in. But, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's it's definitely an album that deserves to be on, you know, everybody's list. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's why it's there, right? Not on yours, though. It's not. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's on my list, but I, I, I think I've somewhat explained myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my number one's going to be a little bit surprising. <laughs> so it's uh, 1990. I think I know where you're going here. Are they from here? They are from here. Yeah, yeah I know which one you picked. Yeah. So, Extreme 2, yeah. Porno Graffiti. Again, it's another one of those ones where the, the uh, a big leg of this stool was, wow, like, how did you take that whole chunk of, of sonicness and just streamline it without losing the feel? Yeah. That, you know, and so, you know, Knowing that in that producer's role, taking a band that at that point didn't really sound like any other band and knowing how to not change them. You know, if if I think of how that band sounded when they were called The Dream and being able to see that kind of adapted for the, the debut album, but then building on everything else that they had going and enhancing that with Extreme 2 and pumping that out. And just, I mean, the songs that are on there, that it's almost like every song on that album could have been a hit. They're all so well-crafted, so well-done, and arranged, produced. It's, 
again, it's just one of these albums that, yep, it's not the heaviness of Megadeth. It's not the heaviness of Metallica. Instead, it's got the, it's the crunch and the funk. And he just, as the producer, he pulled it all together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, that was another one of these albums that I just played again and again and again and again. Yeah. I don't know why. It just, that if, one did just kind of hits me. If you're a guitar player, uh-huh. this is one of the albums you put on and you go, holy fuck. Because sure. Yeah. Nuno's guitar playing on this. It's everywhere on it. Uh-huh. It's not just the riffs. Yeah. The solos are, like, the amount of soloing on this mm-hmm. is, yeah. is fucking unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, not to be, like, blasphemous, but this is almost like the funk metal version of Van Halen. One of the things I would I loved about Eddie's playing was, you know, he could drop out of a rhythm and play a solo, and there was enough rhythmic in there that you never lost the rhythm element in there. And, you know, so he's another band that didn't need a rhythm guitarist because Nuno had that ability to fill the whole thing in while they were doing it. And, uh, yeah, it's, you're right. It, it is a, it's a tour de force for guitar. And, yeah, Nuno does, you know, he, he's got some produce, production duties on here too. So, yeah. And it's pretty varied as it well. Is. Um, I caught the tour. It was actually the first night of their world tour promoting this was in Dublin. Uh huh. And I believe a band called King of the Hill. Supported him. Okay. It might have been an English fan called Jagged Edge. I can't re- exactly remember, but I do remember at the time that the there was two songs that were all over the radio. Uh huh. And it was more than words and yeah. wholehearted. Yeah. And they sound nothing like the rest of. They the don't. And the band came out, and the first song they op- they opened the show with "It's a Monster." Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Fucking heavy song. Uh huh. And I remember there was some people around me going, "What the fuck is this?" They were expecting this. You know, <laughs> acoustic show or, or something. Yep. And then I think they did, of course, Decadent Stance and yep. and all, all these fucking really heavy tunes. Yep. And then, of course, they did more than words and right. Yeah. And then back to the heavy shit. Right. But uh, I often wonder with this record because it was so successful. Why they didn't work with Michael on Three Sides Every Story? Yeah. And um, they had Bob St. John, I think, uh, engineered it. And you'd think that this album worked, Pornography worked so well and did so well. Yeah. I just, I'd love to know why they didn't work with Michael on the follow up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder that too is that you, you get that one, and then obviously, you know, waiting for the punchline just kind of disappeared on birth, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, and, there's good, there's, and there's good stuff on that yeah. album, too. I remember that uh, one of the guys that produced two of my CDs, he absolutely freaking loved that album. And, he, you know, a lot of times you would go down the studio and that's what he would have on, was that. Waiting for the punchline. Yeah, waiting for the punchline. Yeah, and, and yeah, he was an incredible guitar player as well. But, uh, yeah, yeah, like I said, it's just, I know it's a, it's a weird one for me, especially when, you know, usually you find me listening to, again, Dalker or Megadeth or Arch Enemy or all kinds of crap. And, but again, this is just one of these ones where, you know, you, you listen to it and it's like, holy crap. And again, it's stuff like, like Decadence Dance where, you know, you go through that one. It's a perfect example. It's got the lightness, but at the same time, if you really listen to it, you're like, God damn, there's a heavy riff behind that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you get the push pull of it can get really heavy grindy and then it leans out again and, and it's got a lot of dynamics and stuff in there. And again, I'll, I'll compare back to Van Halen, uh, but the light and shade of the songs as well is, is, you know, is awesome. And I almost wish that things like More Than Words weren't even on it 
because it would just to me it would make it uh, such a better album. Well, I have it. I've uh, here's 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 me now. I'm going to show. Ooh, Richie vinyl. I actually have it on vinyl. Uh huh. And whole heart is not on the vinyl. Nice. That's the seat. That's a bonus track, I believe, on the CD only. So I have the vinyl at home, and, and I can't remember the name of the last song on it. But yeah, that's it. No wholehearted. Oh, and that was a single. So uh, what uh, did what the label did? was... I'm going to have to go get the vinyl now. So what the label <laughs> did was they write more than words. Yeah, uh, we need another one. Uh huh. Or we'll pick the bonus track because they probably thought, ah, yeah, we'll wholehearted a throwaway track as a bonus. Yeah, and they said, right, that's the one that sounds like more than words. <laughs> we'll release that. I bet you that's what happened. Could be. Could yeah. be, yeah. Because what was the, what was the, oh, get the funk outs on it yep. as well. Yeah, yep. that was the other the other. Yeah, great tune. It was it's great. It was it was big, but it, more than words, like just put them tr- up there, like with fucking everybody else. It, yeah, well. I mean it's it's unfortunate because you think you get like get the funk out, which has a lot of the same kind of dynamics as uh, love in oh, an elevator. I was actually thinking more like um, uh, like cult of personality. Dynamics, yeah, yeah, living speaking, color. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, at least at least those guys broke out with a heavier tune. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. So I have twenty four honorable mentions. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I have. I definitely have two. I have um, two. Okay, right. I'll st- I'll stick with two, but I I could throw some more. I'm in. gonna laugh if either one um, of you is matches mine. One of them definitely won't. I right. know that one of them definitely won't match. Mine. Okay, one one of them is my favorite Dokken record, and the reason I didn't put it in my top five is Michael did the Japanese version of Dysfunctional, which was uh-huh. the self-titled record, and it only had nine songs on it. And the album that I had when when I, I thought got you were going to put this on your list, to be honest. All right, the album that I had uh, that that I got, yeah was the 11-song version that Don produced. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that's the reason I didn't put this one on it, because for years, you, it was hard to get uh-huh. the Japanese import. It cost a fucking fortune. They still cost a yeah. fortune. <laughs> no, I, I eventually did get it, and yeah. I got it pretty cheap. Okay. But it's it's a, it's raw sounding. Um, the, the track listing is a little bit different on it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not the full record, um, and I. The full record to me is the eleven, the eleven song one, and that's the one that spoke to me when I when I got it. Yeah, um, it's a little bit more Beatles sounding. It, it's You're kind right. of it, it has that temperament. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas the Michael Wagner one is more raw. Um, I just prefer the Don Dockham produced one. Mm. Like, I listened to that a lot more because that spoke to me a lot more at the time. Sure. And then as a kind of an anomaly, sometimes I might put on the Michael Wagner one. But the problem there is that I'm also, it's not just the sound of it. I'm used to hearing the songs in a certain order. Uh-huh. And, like, the second to last song on the Don Dockin one is the opening track on the Japanese one. Yeah. And if you like, listen, it, yeah, yeah. it's one of these things, right? Because we're still, we're still of the age of... You buy an album and you buy a CD and you and it is ingrained in your brain of what song should come after each song. See, th- 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 just to go off on a tangent for a minute, that's what drives me fucking mad about if you get British Steel on vinyl, the new one, uh-huh. it doesn't open with Rapid Fire. It opens with the fucking, the big song. Yeah. 
and it's, it just sounds wrong. And Coverdale, when he, when they did Slip of the Tongue, yeah. they fucked around with the track listing on the 30th anniversary edition. I'm like, no. Yeah, I mean that would that would that would really screw with me on British Steel. I mean that's because actually on my vinyl I even have I think it's on Living After Midnight. I have a skip. That's the first song, and then Rapid right. Fire is the second song. And I, and I and I but I, I think. but I'm so I was so ingrained with that vinyl that I learned the song with the skip. So a lot of times I would play try to play it in the band, and I would play the skip. They'd be like, "What the hell are you doing?" Like, "Oh fuck!" I'd love to know the, <laughs> but I'd love to know the logic behind that. Is it that the young kids want the popular song first yeah. up? Yeah, it is. Um, but why the fuck would Coverdale mess around with Slip of the Tongue? Yeah, or or it had to do with, uh, and this is this would be, uh, it wouldn't be my first choice for the reason, but it would be that when they went to go cut a new lacquer on that and they're doing it on the 180, that it might be that while doing this this way may work out better for the overall quality of the album. Sometimes when you're cutting an album, sometimes song order and length and all that, you're like, eh, we're getting close in the run out. We probably don't want to do this. So it it could be something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, again, that's, but I would, if if I was pressed, I would say, no, it's probably because they went, we're going to cater to the, to the, the big song, you yeah. know? I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan when they fuck with the running order. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd be, I mean, it's, yeah, I want it to start with rapid, right? I want it to end with the rage. Yeah. I mean, that's how I want the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else, I'd be like, what the hell? So, Wait, what's your first honorable mention? The debut from Keel. Oh, okay. It just, it, it, again, it was one of these things where it just jumped out at me. It just, it just sounded different. Did it was kind of, you know, I, I, I really appreciated the, you know, I, I like Mark Ferrari's guitar tone on there. Um, it just, you know, obviously Ron Keel's voice is is on there as well, and that's another one of the ones where. You know that's Michael producing, engineering, and mixing it as well. So he, you know, he had his hands in all facets of it. And I mean, obviously, most people are going to go, "Oh, you know, we we want the right to rock." That's the kind of everyone points to that one. But um, this one, I, I think I even have this one on vinyl. Um, I think I got it on vinyl when it first came out. Who who did the right to rock? Gene Simmons. Mm, I have to go back and look in the credits for that one. Yeah, I can't remember. I have that. Yeah, I can't remember who did it though. Um, But yeah, I've got. I know I've got this one on vinyl, and I just, yeah, this one I just really was like, it was one of these ones that, that he did that just kind of, again, a lot of albums coming out, and then this one just popped out differently for me, mm. just with everything it had in it. All right. Second honor I mentioned, 1993, Warren's Dog Eat Dog. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that was going to be on your list, yeah, too. The, the best Warrant record. Um, darker, heavier, songwriting on it's fantastic. Uh I think Michael just did a great job of capturing the band. Of course, mm-hmm. the album sold shit. Yeah. Because 93, that any band like that were done. Um, but to me, it's easily the best Warrant record. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Janie just matured as a songwriter on that. When you listen to the whole album, you yeah. just see the different style well, of songs. I mean, that amazing wrote. songwriter just across the board anyways, yeah. too, you know, and... And, you know, again, like you mentioned, nothing but a good time. You know, they talk a lot about about Janie in that book as well. You know, I think a lot of it on there, I think they did a pretty good job of, of portraying him. My girlfriend actually knew him. And she's got pictures of, of them hanging out. And he's, like, got her, her on his shoulders and stuff. He was, um, I think, a friend of one of her girlfriends or something like that. And, and so she was able to spend time with him. And, and yeah, he, you know, she said he was just was just a really awesome 
great person. Kelly was really talented. You know, they were sitting around. He'd play an acoustic guitar and crap and sing it like, you know, they're out there just, this was like in Arizona. So, you know, just having a fire pit going or whatever, and he's just playing songs and crap. And so, you know, a, a big loss. He, you know, really, really talented guy, you know, and especially when it comes to songwriting. Yeah. I just think that album is fantastic. Like people will say, right, what what bands from maybe the mid to late eighties brought out probably their best records in the nineties mm-hmm. that most most people ignored. Yeah. Winger would be one with Paul. Yep. Warren to be another with Dog Eat Dog. Yep. They'd be the two that stand out to me. Sure. Um I just think the Dog Eat Dog album is is, is really fucking good. Mm. Um but again, the, the, that album was dead on arrival when it came out. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That was there was no promotion, there was no nothing. It was just yeah, there I think it that's is. The record where they didn't they go into the offices and uh-huh. the posters were up, and then they said they walked in and it was like yeah. dirt, dirt from Alice in Chains, <laughs> and theirs were down, and it was like overfucked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's a good choice though. But I was really thinking it was going to make your your regular list. <laughs> All right, I guess I got to roll out my second honorable mention. This one is really left field, and I knew this would not be on your list as well. From 2016. <laughs> wow. Uh, the band's Hydrogen. Uh, no. And uh, <laughs> this, so I referred to this band actually at the beginning. This is their second album. Uh, Michael heard their debut. Uh, it got a little buzz on it, but didn't really do much. Uh, but he liked the band. He liked the music. And he contacted them and said, hey, I, I, I'd love to do your second album if you're going to do one. So he ended up doing the second album. It's called Bombshell. I think it's a little hard to pick up now, but I picked it up when it came out. Good female vocalist, uh, all great musicians. And it, I mean, it's a little weird. It's got, it's got kind of a, a gothic edge to it as well. But the songs are good. And, but more importantly, he really did a good job of of going from where they were on the first album, which I went back and listened to after I I started this band with, you know, discovering it with this album. Went back and it was like, okay, so he didn't strip away anything that was there because they also have a, they've got a little bit of, um, probably because of the area they're from as well, they have a little bit of that kind of country vibe in there too as well. Um, I guess kind of similar to Keel, right? But they've, you know, they've got some of that. He didn't put any, strip any of that away and it's just, kind of plotting evil goth metal, I guess is how I could describe it. Okay. Um, yeah, probably you'd probably listen and be like, yeah, this is shite, but <laughs> it's sonically, he did a great job yeah. and that's kind of why, you know, I, I, I liked it was, was that kind of a thing. It, I have a thing with that, you know, I mean, you know, with, I, you know, like I really like Benedictum as well. I've got like every damn thing they have, they've ever put out. Um, but this is another one, at least, this the bombshell album by them was really well, and then they've kind of they veered off a little bit since then. But yeah, this was yeah that's my that's my honorable mention. Uh, before we finish up, yes, I have White Lines Pride, I have Big Game, uh-huh. I have Malice in the beginning, yep. I have all these records. Yeah, I really like and love a lot of them. They're just not on my list, and yeah. if they're not on my. It doesn't mean I don't <laughs> fucking like or love. Oh them. yeah, I mean yeah, I mean if you, you, I'm sure that we both have at least probably eighty five percent of the albums. Michael's produced, if not more. Well, you, after probably 1995, you, you'd have a lot more. I didn't even mention King's X. And they're one of my favorite and bands. I thought I mean, you would he pick did, up... I he mean, did Ogre Tones in 15. 
Uh huh. And, and, and I, ne- I, I never I did. thought I'm, that ogre tones was going to be on your list. I'm not. No, that's. I like ogre tones. I don't love it. I, I prefer fifteen. Uh huh. Um, to that. Yeah. But I, I figured for sure you were going to no, have King's pick, X on no, there. No, I did. All the earlier albums speak more to me than than okay than those. And when it comes to Michael's work, yeah, they wouldn't be up there as being my my favorite. I'm not going to pick. A, 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 my favorite band, yeah, because they're my favorite band, and Michael just happened to work on the record gotcha. as well. Yeah, yeah, like the album has to be fucking great, and it has to fucking sound great. Yeah, and I, I, I just didn't want to do that. And again, all the albums I picked were within what six year period. Yeah, that that's like the sweet spot for me when I was that age. And yeah, they all just spoke to me a lot more. We didn't have any overlap. Which is great, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the closest... We, well, we had band overlap. It would have been if I had also had uh, Master as one of mine. Yeah, we yeah. would have had the overlap. And it's like I said, it's on my list, but I really had to do a lot of thinking around that one. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking by my rationale. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we're done. Yeah. We talked about, what, 20 albums? And we've been, yeah, we've been waiting to do this one for weeks, so it's great we finally were able to, to have time. And you were actually being able to, to break away from kind of everything that's going on in your world, come down to the studio and do it face-to-face, which is way better than doing it oh, over Skype. Definitely. Um, definitely. I think right now, what, schedule, we're looking at maybe squeezing in one more episode before we go on uh, uh, well-deserved summer break. And uh, just, yeah, I, and I think this, this year is definitely... Uh, we're not doing extra episodes over the summer. I think we're just no. yeah. It's uh, no definitely kind of have some burnout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so no, there's no COVID this year, so you can go outside. Yeah, you go to gigs. The bands are coming. Go see them. Yeah, I know they had. I was pricing out those priest tickets today. They're expensive. Holy crap! Fucking hundred twenty fucking dollars to see Rob Halford fucking solo band. I was. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking, you know, okay, so it's Sunday night, right? It's Sunday night, it's Halloween night, uh, and and it was like, all right, you know, do we go? I, I, I'll check them out if they're cheap, because the whole thing is like whether the kiddo's going to be trick treating or not, or she's going to be like, nah, I'm too old for this crap. And so I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll just buy tickets, right? And maybe if they're mo- they're inexpensive enough, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Or like, you know, I say, you know, Richie, can you break free? Let's go. Yeah, but the, the then I, so then I look at the presale today. And because he only had on, they only had, because the day we're doing this, it was the pre-sale day for Priest. Yeah. Um, you only had uh, platinum or aisle seats were the only things that were on sale today. Platinum were $119 plus fees. Well, the, well, the first section I looked at, they were 253 or $430 something. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Fuck no. So I'm- I was like, no, I can't. So I'm going to see what the prices are for the regular sale tomorrow. But it's like, I yeah, I just ah, that's crazy. Well, and I love Priest. I mean, yeah. No, I see. I've I've seen Priest in that the venue twice. For yeah. people, who, you know, obviously, most nearly everyone who listens to this besides me and Scott, the venue holds about six thousand. It's it's like a, it's like a hockey arena. It is. It's a hockey right? barn. It's a yeah. hockey arena. And I've seen Priest there twice. Yeah. And the first time I saw him was with. Ricky Warwick fronted Tin Lizzy um, with Black Label and then Priest. Uh-huh. And I think that was the Epitaph tour. Yeah. So that was a fucking amazing night. Second time I saw him was Redeemer. 
Steel Panther. Yep. Yeah. This time, Sabaton. Not really familiar with Sabaton. Oh, I got like are they gonna, almost everything they've made. Yeah, are they going to make me go? I'm not familiar with them enough. I'm like, mm. uh-huh. and then I'm like, Judas Priest, who's playing guitar? They haven't announced it yet. It's probably not going to be Glenn at all. Definitely it's going to be, be Richie. And is it Andy? <laughs> is it Andy Sneap? I hope so. He did well, a great job last yeah, time. Yeah, but no Glenn, no KK. I'm like, eh, I don't know for that amount of money. Yeah. Eh. I don't know. I think I've, I've seen him with Glenn and KK, and then I've seen him with Richie and Glenn. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm good with Judas yeah. Reese now, especially for that price. But yeah. hey, if you want to go. Definitely weird bills, go. right? Because you have the other one was that announced this week. And again, it was like I texted, checked the girlfriend, and she was like, ooh, because it was Black Label at Everyone, the The prong on them. Um, but then it was like, yeah, prong obituary. and obituary. And it was, she was like, I don't know who these other two bands are. And she's like, and it's a Sunday, Sunday, Thursday night. She's like, really? And I was like, well, yeah. I said, I figured she'd know. Snap your fingers. That's the only one, right? I know. And so that's the clean. Is it the cleansing? Is that the name of the record? I think it's on mid- the cleansing. Mid- yeah, nineties, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and she was like, really? And like, God damn it! So yeah, it was another one that will probably Everybody's pass up. announcing tours. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. If they're either rescheduled tours or they're new tours. And yep. when we're recording this, what stood out for me was that Lacuna Coil and Apocalyptica have rescheduled their tour <laughs> for next year again. Yeah. The, third, the second or third time. And I'm like, everyone else is announcing them. And someone actually made a good point on Facebook when I put it up. Um, it could There could be a lot of different reasons for them because they have to travel here. It could be visas and stuff. I could don't, be. I don't know. But it just seemed odd that everybody else was, re- you know, announcing mm-hmm. tours. Yeah. Well, take out the stadium tours and all. The, yeah. I'm talking about the club level. Yeah. Everyone at the club level or the or the, the small hockey arena level yeah. are announcing tours, yeah. and they're all going to happen. Yeah, I think it's even like what even so priest is end of October. I think Nightwish is like what two weeks before them. Yeah, same but, venue. Yeah, but that Nightwish gig has been up for a year. It has yeah, they've been advertising right. that has for been. a year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's obviously still going to happen. But again, that's a European band uh-huh. coming here to play. Yeah. So how how are they able to do it? And, and right. then Apocalyptica and yeah. Lacuna Kyle can't. There's yeah. obviously something. There's something going on there that's way above my pay grade. Yeah. There there must be. And but, actually, um, I've seen I've seen Lacuna Coil twice in that venue. I missed them. They played on Gigantor. And they I did. Just, I went. I I I got there after they finished. Um, but yeah, that was the show that that was a Motorhead, Volbeat, uh-huh. Megadeth. Yeah, great show. Sick. Yeah, it was sick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right when there they was went, nobody there when they got to La Tout Le Mans. That's and that's what I really wanted to hear him do the duet with Christina. And that's when I was like, hit my daughter and was like, I gotta go now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah. I think you know, good for this week. Again, good to see you coming down. Get out of the house, have a little fun. You're going to have a little fun once in a while. Yeah, get, knock this one out. And like I said, I think right now the way the schedule's running is we think we have something great planned for next week, and then we'll be sliding into uh, into summer break, whatever the hell that means. Do we get a break? Yeah. We'll yeah. see. But uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and me. Have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on...
metal! Everything else is insignificant. Go home.